How's it going, folks? Justin here with a few words before we dive into today's episode. I've had some questions regarding the SAG strike, so I'll address them here and maybe stamp this onto future episodes relevant to guests in the entertainment industry. We like to keep our content varied while attempting to stay within the realms of fantasy, horror, sword and sorcery, any sort of speculative works, be that in film, television, books, music, what have you. Uh, this also includes researchers into the odd and the occult. Now, that being said, actors do make up a percentage of our guests. So what does the strike mean for us? Well, first off, all of the recordings you'll hear featuring any actors or writers, including this one, were recorded prior to the strike, and none contain promotional materials pertaining to any future studio releases. Previous interview with Renee, promotions in that episode were her own theater, and this one is Alex's own documentary, so they do not pertain to studio releases. And th that's it, really. Uh, until this issue is resolved... You'll see more of the same from us. Metal, fantasy, sword and sorcery, horror. We'll have musicians, authors, researchers, you name it. Also, for long-time listeners, you may remember that our first two episodes were actually deep dives into two occult figures, Cornelius Agrippa and John D. If you wish to hear more from us outside of our interview-based content... And this is good news. We're going to be relaunching our occult deep dive episodes to supplement our interview episodes. Now let's get into what we're here for. Now in this episode, I chat with actor, director, and producer Alex Winter about resurrecting Bill and Ted nearly 30 years later, The Lost Boys, The Tech Age, his documentary The YouTube Effect, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Without further ado, here you go. I'm Bill S. Preston, Esquire. And I'm Ted. Bill, here, you take it. Okay. And I'm Ted Theodore Logan. We use too much power. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper, here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Alex, just so we have a platform to dive from here, take us back in time. Mm -hmm. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Oh, I'm all of the above. Um, <laughs> I'm all of the above. Build a fort, burn it down. Uh, but I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time at the library. 
when I was a kid a lot of time at the public library and loved it and really was a refuge. And the internet, I found the internet in the early 80s before the days of the web, and it became a refuge for me, similar to the way the public library did. It was it was kind of a window into a world. It was kind of a democratizing culture and space, and I really took to it. So that was kind of early days of, on, of online community were were a refuge as well. So when it comes to books and such, did you have a genre that you leaned towards? Were you a fantasy guy, maybe sci-fi? I mean, I liked a lot of everything, but I, I read a lot of sci-fi when I was a kid. A lot of Ray Bradbury, Asimov, Heinlein. But I also liked, you know, the sort of the classics, you know, tw- I mean, when I was little, like Twain and, you know, Bram Stoker and mm. all of that stuff. So it was sort of, I, I kind of liked anything that I thought was, again, would take me into an inter- interesting world. It's sort of like what ended up leading to well, how I'm doing my docs. Right. Early into your acting career, you stepped behind the camera pretty early on. Was that always your goal was to eventually work your way behind the camera and direct? Yeah, though I kind of came up doing both at once. I was a child actor, but I was making films as a kid. And then I went, I stopped acting and went to NYU film school for directing. And then I came out and I was directing. And that's when I started doing the movies that most people know me for. But I was already directing by then professionally. I was doing music videos and commercials and things like that. So the two things have always kind of happened at once. Mm. Um, it's just the you know the directing is is more anonymous, so people don't tend to know that you know that's you. I never really intended to do just one or the other. I always kind of hoped to do both. Is it fair to say you know since you kind of started out acting, had, did that experience in front of the camera sort of help you direct actors? Oh, hugely! It absolutely did, and it's helped me to direct my subjects and my documentaries. You know, being on the other side of the camera, especially from a very young age, you, you get a really kind of instinctive sense of how to direct people and how you want to be spoken to. Like what what creates trust? Documentaries are really all about creating trust, but like sincere trust, not like bullshitting somebody, yeah, you yeah. know, or hoodwinking them. That's something as as an actor, especially a young actor. I came up kind of like, well, how do I want to be spoken to? What's gonna What's gonna make me trust somebody? Now, do you have a eureka moment, maybe like an aha light bulb situation you can point to where your own interest in the art sort of arose, maybe a specific play or performance or something? Um, it's hard to say because I came up in an arts family. My parents are both artists and all, my brother is a musician. So it was around me all the time, every day. And it was just kind of the family business. And I didn't really ever think of doing anything else. Uh but I, you know, in terms of my earliest influences, I came up sort of being babysat by the, the movie theater at the university where my mother taught dance. And so I saw a lot of old movies very young. So Hitchcock, Keaton, Chaplin. I remember seeing Todd Browning's Freaks when I was probably way too young to see that. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind. But I love Browning. I love James Whale, you know, the early horror, Frankenstein, Dracula, then the Hammer. So these were things that, that had a really big influence on me when I was young. And uh, that kind of cinema, the sort of extreme big sets and sort of big topics and big adventures, that kind of stuff was very fascinating to me when I was little. This is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know. What scared you as a kid? Uh, it's a good question. I was really, I really, I was pretty daring. I was really little. I was a very small person and my friends all thought I was crazy because I would really pretty much be up for anything. <laughs> so I would like jump off of very high cliffs, do kinds of lots of daredevil things when I was little. So I, I had a kind of a fearless nature for some reason that's probably not mentally healthy. I had like literally zero fear of death. I just wasn't concerned about it. I don't know what actually scared me, you know, probably the same thing that, you know, not having my parents around, being alone, you know, the sort of normal things, being isolated, 
and then I started working professionally as a very young person. So I think that like navigating the adult world of show business as a little kid was kind of scary. It took me a minute to get my head around because you're really in a, in a very high pressure, high stress environment. So some of that stuff was a little scary. So did you have an interest in drama and theater early on? Very. I mean, I, I got on stage at five or six. I started dancing at like three, started singing by like seven or eight, I guess. So, you know, I was that kid, you know, not everyone is who ends up in the industry. Sometimes they're shoved into it by their parents. I, I was not. I was just very much interested in the arts and wanted to be on stage and wanted to be doing this stuff. I started making short films and I was like seven, eight years old. I mean, all of that stuff was fascinating to me. How did that transition from the stage to the professional screen happen for you? Funnily enough, I was at NYU Film School looking for a summer job, and the director, Michael Winner, approached me about being in Death Wish 3. <laughs> and uh, he was interested in me because I, had a, I was born in England and I had a British passport, and he wanted, I was living in America by then, he wanted to shoot the movie in, in London, and he, he could pay me less if I worked as a local. Right. Mm -hmm. So so he's like, I think you're a marvelous actor, but uh, is your passport up to date? You know, one of those. So that was my foray in, into acting and film. But my first big film experience was Lost Boys, which was really kind of its own thing. And, you know, in terms of a transition from both stage and being a film student to being an actor in a very big movie, that was just an amazing experience because I was working with such a, a incredible high level of talent and people who I admired from people in front of the camera like Kiefer and Diane Weiss and Ed Herman and, and that and such, Jason Patrick, to people behind the camera like Mike Chapman who had shot Raging Bull and Bo Welch and Susie Becker, like just incredible talent. So that was a really helpful foray into the industry for me. I learned an enormous amount. I don't do that much in the movie, so I had a lot of free time and I just spent it following everyone around. I think Mike Chapman, he's gone now, so I've never had a chance to apologize. I'm sure he hated my guts because um, I just followed him everywhere like a, like a five-year-old. And I think I was just a pain in the ass. Sidebar on Lost Boys, I just spoke with V. Neal recently, and she was uh, bragging about how she had you guys in those acrylics she, the whole time. <laughs> she's, a, she, she's a genius. Uh, we love, loved V. Loved her and would do anything she asked. And one funny story with me and V, like one day when we were shooting, she lived nearby Warner Brothers. So we went back, she and I went back to her house to grab lunch while I was in all my stuff. And she stopped by the supermarket to get something. And like, I totally forgot I had it all on, like went to the counter and they like did a quadruple take. V is the best. I love V. Yeah, she's great. About to dive into the doc here, but I would be remiss and people would come with me with pitchforks if I didn't touch on Bill and Ted. I wanted to, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's essentially, you know, 30 years after the second film and anytime you have a, a new installment or you revisit a classic or a reboot, more times than not, it's not usually received that well, which is not mm -hmm. the case with Bill and Ted. Why do you think it succeeded in that nostalgia space where some others kind of fall flat? I mean, I think a few things contributed to it doing well. I think first and foremost, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon spent a lot of time on that script, like a decade. So it just got better and better and better. Dean Pariseau is a genius. So that was where we had a really good director who understood tone and Bill and Ted movies have a very strange tone and it was very important to us to make a strange movie and not make some kind of weak sauce later <laughs> sequel and we were happy to alienate some audience members if we had to but we were like it's going to be like the heart of bill and ted one and the weirdness of bill and ted two and then its own thing was kind of where we were coming from so i think that helped 
But honestly, sad as it is to say, I think it coming out during COVID was very helpful for us in the sense that everyone was trapped at home. Everyone was miserable. It's just a little ray of sunshine, that movie. It's, it's so genuinely, sincerely heartfelt. Like Keanu and I were so happy to be back in the playpen playing those characters again. We had so much fun. And so many people came back, like Hal Landon and Amy Stock, like all these people that were in the original came back. So it was like a big kind of mushy family reunion that there was just a lot of love on set. Like it's genuine. It was, it was just very sweet and everyone was having a good time. And I think it came out when everyone was miserable. So it was just like this thing you could watch where everyone was kind of happy. And <laughs> I think it made people, made people happy because it wasn't, we didn't know that going in. We didn't know we were making a happy pill for people in the middle of a pandemic, obviously, because it wasn't, there was no pandemic yet. I think that ended up being kind of a, you know, a, a, a salve for some people. Right, man. Just as a fan, got to tell you, I loved it just straight up. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely loved it, man. So with the YouTube effect, Alex, you detail, you know, the rise of YouTube as a company, creative platform, Mm -hmm. and take on the issue of disinformation, pretty big topic. Maybe some folks are going to be listening to this on YouTube. So (laughs) when did you kick the idea of the documentary around and tackle on some of those big ideas? I've been working on movies around the growth of online community for a very long time, like back to downloaded and the rise of Napster. So this has really been one of my core areas of interest in terms of technology specifically. Gail Ann Hurd, interestingly enough, the producer, uh, the great producer came to me uh, on this and said she had some access to some folks at YouTube and did I want to collaborate with her. She had seen my other tech docs and, and I'd been trying to wrap my head around a story about the rise of Google and its, and its power and influence. And so it felt like a great time to, to do it. And I also had relationships at YouTube and some other contacts. So it just felt like, you know, the internet had come along, the web had come along far enough. And there were so many important things going on in the world that were being impacted by these technologies that it felt like time to look at what I think is, is of as the very largest tech company on the planet that is often the least examined which that felt like an odd thing to me and like it was high time someone examined it. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And you've got uh, co-founder Stephen Chen is featured throughout the doc. You know, what was his initial reaction when you approached him? Was there any convincing? I mean, you always have to sort of talk people through what you're going to do and establish trust. But I think these people know, I know I have a lot of relationships in this space and a lot of people know and understand that I don't have an adversarial relationship with the technology sector. I, I, I mean, I have a clear eyed and I try to have a clear eyed view of what's going on and sort of look at the 360 picture as opposed to looking at it as some kind of other something separate from society that like a switch you can just turn off so i think people knew i wasn't you know approaching them with the idea of trying to dismantle somebody or like knife them but you know i i do go out of my way to be transparent and to explain what it is i'm doing and that like while i have a lot of respect and admiration for these companies i also think that there are harms and i intend to look at both of those things you know when you look at the, the growth of YouTube, it's even mentioned in the doc from uh, 2005 to 2020. Mm-hmm. It's kind of staggering. So that's just kind of seen behind the scenes. Where do you see things going in the next 15 years? And do you think it's a positive future? I think that it's a mixed bag. I think that it's going to get better long term. And I think it's going to get worse short term. I think that there aren't uh, incentives for these companies to police themselves on the stuff that's destructive. As we head into another election year, So I think that's going to be a bumpy couple of years. I think long term, there will be regulation and there will be some antitrust law and some other 
regular uh, legislation that comes into play that will make the internet a safer place to so like quote anthony in the movie uh, we'll get some digital stoplights up at the intersection so everyone just stops crashing into each other all day long right. uh, but i don't think it's happening anytime soon i think it's going to be a ways and i think that we're going to see more damage before we see things get worked out i know you guys have this alamo draft house run coming up of the dock mm-hmm. is there plans or for an official release can you say yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, we're doing Alamo, and then we're doing theaters all over the world, actually, um, that are that are not w- related to Alamo. And then we are uh, coming out streaming worldwide on August eighth, and that will be on every platform. Canopy is doing a really cool kind of targeted release that's going to go into a lot of educational which is really what I want, and into libraries, which is amazing. Um, and it's through libraries with them. I love Canopy. Uh, but it will be everywhere. It'll be on like I- Amazon and iTunes and all that. Now that you've kind of wrapped up with YouTube, do you plan on investigating any other platforms? I mean, I don't tend to go tech doc to tech doc because I'm just <laughs> mentally exhausted by the time I finish these things. And, and it's so bleak. I just like you know want to have a happy, fuzzy thing. I'm looking at some, you know, our next docs are going to be involving some pretty big politically oriented issues, uh, but I'm not jumping right back into a tech doc. I'm giving myself a breather. Yeah. Gotcha. That's that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you still work in theater at all? Do you have any interest in returning to the stage or anything like that? Yes, I do. I'm circling doing a play. I can't talk about what that is yet, but um, I am interested in going back in a theater. I miss it very much. And it's my my favorite place to act. I'm trying to take part in in generating a a theater project right now. When it comes to acting on the stage or on the screen, is there any difference to how you approach it as an actor? A little bit. Not really an approach. I mean, most of my process is the same for both, and it came up from doing theater. It's very related to theater. It's very physical. My approach to acting in general is very physical. But the, 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 the execution is very different. And it's a, and you have to like I'm I feel for actors who came up doing TV and film who then jump over to theater that must be a really rude awakening because it you know you have to have the whole thing memorized you know you, you get basically you get one take you don't get a take two right you don't get right. to stop and tell the audience you want to try that scene again so it's like you hit the ground running and that clock is ticking and you're done when it's over I love that a lot of actors don't but I started doing it when I was very young so it's kind of in my blood. This is something I like to ask all actors I speak with as well, just because I feel like to the general public, the term method acting has become muddled. Oh, God, has it ever. Yes, and and most actors have their own specific method that's special to them. So, Alex, what's your method? (laughs) Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think most times you hear people talking about the method, they're not talking about the method. Um, They're just talking about acting, and, and they're talking about process. And there are many processes. And I don't know any actor, no matter how great who even if they're they were trained method who only use a method every great actor you know will use anything they can grab their hands on that works and, and like so you know sort of like in movies where you you go take a screenwriting class and they're like never use narration and like you know of course you immediately start writing with narration because that's what your script wants you don't even think about those rules so i think it's the same in acting and i think that for me the coming up with with I mean, I'm inside out from the standpoint that I like researching. That's why I like making docs. I like researching characters, finding a human life for them, finding out what's the world around them, 
and kind of building that world. But then at the same time, I'm working on my body. My body's relationship to this character is very important to me. Alexander training, animal training, vocal training. That's stuff that I still do, even though I wasn't even acting for years. I was training all the time because I enjoy it. So like on Bill and Ted, I was doing a lot of animal work. I took tap dancing class again to loosen up my body. It was a lot of physicality. I mean, Dean Pariseau was laughing at me because I even brought in the, vi- the physical effects, the makeup effects. I went to Kevin Yeager when we were talking about the prison scene. I was like, look, I've been training as this convict, like a silverback gorilla for the last year. So if you can make my body look a little bit gorilla-like, that would be great. <laughs> um, and he basically built me a gorilla suit. It was heavy as hell in the New Orleans heat. So it was kind of an insane move on my part. But that grew out of doing animal work. So, uh, I mean, all those things are, are where that's where it's fun right like that's right. where it's play that's awesome alex uh, we got to wrap up here we come, our time's coming to an end so i'll just throw this last question at you mm-hmm. what number am i thinking of i think that would be a six or a nine <laughs> as jimmy as jimmy hendrix once said <laughs> <laughs> right all right man it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you uh i know you got to get out of here i want to thank you Likewise. and tiffany for setting this up recording stop you guys have a great rest of your okay. day man bye-bye all right folks that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed that chat with alex as always thanks for listening and we'll see you back next time monsters madness and magic (laughs) welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, The untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.